Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. So today's episode is uh, very helpful. I would get out your pen and paper if you're on a walk. Uh, be prepared to stop and take notes because there's a lot of really helpful advice for, you know, just your finances. Like if the idea of this episode annoys you and you hate oh, the then idea, you really then this it. is exactly the episode you need to listen to. But let me get, tell you're you guys, learn something. I was annoyed having to record this episode because I was like, I don't want to talk about money. I don't want to talk about finances. I, I get A, I get bored by it and B, I get stressed by it. And so if you are like me, tune in, baby, turn Here's that volume thing. up, settle in and let us take you for a financial ride. I love it. When you call the audience, baby, it's like, uh, I don't love it Okay, for you, but well, the good news is other people seem to really like me. Lauren Anastasio, she serves as the director of financial advice at Stash, an industry leading subscription platform, empowering middle-class Americans to invest and build long-term wealth, which let's be honest, that's all we, that's all any of us want. We just want to build. Well, certainly you, that's all you care about. We want to build stability. Lauren is a certified financial planner. She has an MBA from the University of Delaware and a master's of international business. Yeah. She gives a lot of great tips for all stages of life, how to save, how to create a budget, how to deal with credit, how to build credit. Very, very, very helpful. So I wouldn't skip this episode just because you think like, oh, I like the funny episodes, I like the deep episodes. You really got to be all in with us from start to finish. We're not going to lead you down the wrong road. We're going to take you down the right road. Yeah. And know that if we're doing this episode, it's because it's going to be beneficial in some way. And not every episode is going to be a ha ha ha. Aaron is so funny. And Aaron is so pretty. My prediction is and Aaron we'll is, walk away. We want to be best friends with Aaron and Sarah's okay. the worst. Not every episode can be like My that. prediction is that you will walk away from this episode doing something. You're not going to just walk away from this episode. Being hmm, like, that's a little broad being I'm gonna say, doing something, but everyone's going to walk away. Everyone's like, going to walk away doing something. You're going to walk away making some sort of decision. After so listening you're going to walk away from this episode. You're going to eat lunch. You're going to walk away from this episode and you're going to get in your car. Okay. All right. Enjoy guys. All right. Hi, Lauren. Hello. How are you? Hi, we're great. So I'm like, you're ready to just jump. No, I just was right going to explain. I'm, I'm not anxious isn't the right word, but like just the thought of a financial episode weighs on me because I have been in denial. No, I've been conditioned oh. my whole life. I don't know if anyone conditioned me this way. I just did it myself. Um, but I just really don't like talking about money. I really don't like talking about finances. I am like the perfect person to commit fraud against because <laughs> I never know what I have. I never know where it goes. I, it's very hard to keep track of things. And I'm like scared to look at my bank account because I'm scared to see how much I spent on something, or I'm scared to see how much I have left. I feel like in my mind, I I'll have months where I'm like, God, I'm really making a lot of money. And then I'll like get my weekly report or my monthly report for my person. I'm like, huh, do not have as much as I thought I did. And then I'm disappointed again. So money just has like a stressful energy around it for me. I appreciate you sharing that. That is um, a very common consensus. Financial anxiety is very real. And the reality is the more we talk about it and the more we feel empowered to take control of our finances, the less scary it is. So it's all about sort of getting comfortable with what we have and what we want to accomplish financially. And then it can be a far more rewarding and fun experience to 
see how much you've accomplished. It's kind of like going to the gym. Sometimes it's a little daunting, but after you've been there, you feel so good about it afterwards and really proud of yourself. It's a very good yeah, example. I mean, I think for the first time in my life, I feel more comfortable talking about money because I have it. Oh, so, so you're going to start bragging right up top. No, I'm just saying for the so you're first... You're just like gloating about making so much money. For the first time in my life, I have savings. For the first time in my life, I've found ways to have my money make me money. I mean, up until my mid-30s, I didn't have money. Um, I'm obviously in a dual income household and... I, I wasn't contributing the way that I'm contributing now. I was just, I didn't know how to ask the right questions. I, I don't know. And I'm sure it goes back to how we were raised. We were raised by a single mom and money scared her. She, you know, was lived on child support and all those things. And money just means something different to everybody. And it is a scary topic. And, and money is a big trigger for Sarah. Money is a big well, money's a big trigger for me because I'm just always really scared that I'm not going to have it. Yeah. That's that's a great point. We all have financial traumas that I don't think we really spend time to acknowledge. Finance and money really are very sensitive issues. And we have financial personalities, actually, that are really developed from our childhood and experiences that we have growing up. And what you described in regards to, oh, I only now feel comfortable talking about money because I feel like I have it and it's something that I am not afraid to discuss openly. The um, reality is I think many people feel this way, but none of us knew what we were doing when we were younger. Money is not something that's taught in school. Financial habits aren't something that are often taught at home. And most of us did really stupid things in our 20s. to be perfectly transparent, I had a mound of credit card debt when I got out of college. And um, yeah, it was it was not a great situation. Even once I started working after grad school and I had like a very lucrative job, I was spending very irresponsibly and I felt like I squandered a really long period of time. But if I had been talking about it openly with friends, with family, I would have realized everyone was going through the same thing. So a big part of what I'm hoping we can do, especially like through this episode, is to start to normalize the conversation of this is something that I know maybe I haven't perfected, but I really want to learn more about and I want to get better at managing like and asking our friends and opening up the conversation to others to basically say like, what do you do? Are you investing? Like, how do you save money? What does your household do when it comes to managing the finances? And really start to get comfortable having that dialogue. It tends to be a very taboo subject. It's kind of like when you were little and you were told we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about religion at the dinner table. Money was one of those topics that we were just raised we shouldn't be talking about, but I think maybe we should start. Well, that makes I sense. forged mm. checks. Oh, you really did. (laughs) No, that you really did. I really did. I'm glad you're actually willing to admit that. Yeah, I feel like we should all start this episode by admitting a financial trauma. And one of mine is that I forged checks. Well, can I be clear? That was um, not your financial trauma. That was actually a trauma you created for our parents and our mother when you forged checks with under her name. Yeah. So she, I mean, nothing crazy, but like I wanted to take spin classes. You know, all my friends were doing it. Spin classes. They were like $25 a pop. 
I had, I had to be a part of these spin classes. So I went in my mom's wallet and I would like forge, you know, nothing like insane, but like a hundred bucks here, hundred bucks there. And I would sign her name and I feel really bad about it. I'm glad you feel bad about it. Yeah. And since you, are, you? Do you have anything? well, since you're admitting things, I would like to remind you of another thing you did, not me. Oh, no, 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 this, um, is, this is not for you to talk about things. That, no, no, because, no, no. These aren't for you to talk about things that I've done. You can talk about things you've done. Okay. Can I say I was related to someone who, um, Sarah didn't pay her car lease and said she paid her car lease for many months in a row and gave our dad bad credit for seven years over it. Right. Thank you. You did. And I did not spend a lot of money growing up and we have very different financial personalities. And it made me think of when you said that, that people really do have financial personalities based on their childhood. And so first question I would have is what can parents be doing to give their children, what's the right or what's the best financial personality to have? And how can you give that to your kids? Like, how do you raise your kids around money? How do you talk to your kids, but not scare them about money? Because when you say financial trauma, it makes sense to use that word because finances are directly tied to your survival. So you're, you, you do feel traumatized when you don't have money growing up because it feels like there's fear involved. You know, it, it's directly tied to you being able to have a roof over your head. Yeah, that's very real. I um, Well, first I want to address this like misconception that folks who don't have a lot of money or um, children who are raised in homes where their parents may not be particularly affluent um, have a harder time learning. The reality is actually I've seen far more children who are raised by parents of lesser means that learn more about managing their finances because their parents have to teach them the value of money. They have to learn the hard way that they can't just have whatever they want whenever they want it. It's often households where maybe there is an abundance of money um, or money is not really much of a concern where money management skills are are rarely taught because it's something, one, we don't talk about, and two, if there is ever kind of trouble, there's a level of comfort and security. So parents tend not to raise it. It's so interesting. Like I, just a really short story, but I was one of um, my daughter's friends, we were having a conversation and she started, I said, oh, did you move? And she said, yeah, you know, and this is a 10-year-old. Yeah, you know, we moved and it was, a, it was a family decision. And I said, oh, like, what do you mean it was a family decision? She said, well, my mom and dad sat me and my brother down and they walked us through our finances and they walked us through what our options were. Because of COVID, the family business wasn't doing as well. So they basically put a PowerPoint presentation together of if we stay in the house, this is how life is going to change. And if we move to a place that we can afford as a family, these are the things that we'll be able to do. And anyways, they, they involved the kids, a 10-year-old and I think a 12-year-old. And my first instinct was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, I don't that know. Could, that like, could traumatize a kid. Yeah. Like, do you want to put that on a kid, that kind of decision? Like, because my instinct always when my daughters are like, well, how much is that? Or, well, well, is always like, it's none of your business. Don't worry about it. That's always my instinct. But I had a moment of going, wait a minute, how amazing to involve the kids and make them realize, guys, this is how much things cost. I have to make this amount of money for you to be able to do those tennis, tennis lessons. Like 
what is the age when it is appropriate to really start walking your kids through the financial sort of system in your home? And what's the tone you should have? Yeah. So I think every family is different and the level of comfort you have with sharing information with your children will vary. And how old they might be when you start to share that, um, I think is really based on their level of maturity. I really think it's important though to start the conversation at like a baseline. So you don't want to wait until someone loses their job or you have some type of like emergency to start the conversation with your family. That will likely traumatize them when the world gets turned upside down. You want to start from a baseline where things are kind of every day, nothing special is particularly going on, just Let's have a conversation about how we manage the household. And there are ways to have conversations about like personal finance, money management within the home without telling them like how much money you make. You don't need to share your salary with your kid who's going to go turn around on the playground. But you can say, as a family, we value education. So we're actively saving for your college fund. And because we value you getting that education, we may have to be more decisive about where we go on vacation this year or if we take a vacation every year because there are trade-offs. So it's really a matter of kind of expressing the values that you have as parents and sharing those with your children to help them understand why you're making the decisions that you do. It's not just, no, you can't have that toy or no, we can't take as many vacations as the neighbors across the street this year. It's really outlining, well, we don't have a brand new car or we're not going to get a brand new iPhone every time a new one comes out. But as a family, we value something else and we're going to allocate our resources towards the thing that we value as a family. That makes sense. Now, while you're saying this, I'm thinking that the people I know who seem to have the healthiest outlook on finances and money are people who say that they grew up poor, but didn't know that they were poor. Mm. That They grew up in a house where they never realized that they were poor. They never, never realized that they were without, which to me brings us back to sort of like what your financial personality is and the the attitude around personal uh, around your finances. So that tells me that those parents are in a home they're they're clearly probably struggling to to get them more Christmas presents or they're struggling to have a bigger house or maybe even to pay the mortgage or the rent. But the messaging to the kids is we're fine. We're great. Look at how great our life is. Look how lucky we are. To me, I've always had a financial per- that for, sort of that more of that I mean, would you know if you would agree? I've always had a financial personality of someone who feels like I have a lot. Even if I don't have a lot that year, I do always- Do you feel like you had a lot as a kid? I felt like I had a lot as a like, kid. Like, do you have memories of, sorry, we're going to just talk, you know, but do you have memories yeah. of like, because this is a vivid memory for me. For me, I remember going to the laundromat with mom because mom was like, the washing machine broke and she was like, until my next child support check, like I cannot get a new one. Like I just can't. So I remember going to that laundromat and feeling shame. I remember being there and that feeling of like, we're poor or even, even though clearly we were not, but I vividly remember going to the laundromat. I vividly remember like going to the, to the Ralph's and mom's credit card getting declined. These are all normal things that happen. Your card gets declined. You're like, oh shoot, I got to make a transfer or, oh God, blah, blah, blah. It happens. It's normal. But I remember those things as a kid. And I feel like you don't. No, I, well, two things. I remember, I always felt like we had a lot growing up 
And that this is like a great example of, you know, siblings don't have the same childhood because like each person picks up on different things. So I always felt like a rich kid and I almost felt like ashamed of being a rich kid. I always felt like we had a lot of things. So I've asked my mom about this laundromat story before because Sarah's mentioned it before. And I'm like, I don't remember us struggling that way. And and it's not struggling, but it's just, but the way that it hit you was that way. And this is why it's so interesting with the way that kids pick up on things. Cause what our mom told me was, she said, it's so funny that Sarah remembers it that way. She said, our laundry machine did break at one point and it was going to be a couple days till it was going to get fixed. And she's like, and I thought because my kids are privileged, I'm going to take them to the laundromat and I'm going to show them how most people do their laundry. And it will be a good experience that I don't have like spoiled kids to show them what other people, uh, how other people are doing their laundry as like an experience to try to show them like not everybody has a laundry machine in your house and that she really remembered you really having a a negative reaction to it. You have to also remember like and this is our podcast. So we're making it like kind of personal or whatever, but (laughs) you do have to remember our mom lived on child support and yes, we were privileged. And of course we, all those things, but our mom did struggle. Our mom did struggle to balance her checkbook. She did struggle. Like I cannot afford to do this. I cannot afford to do that. The point is I remember those things Mm -hmm. and you don't. Yeah. I think it just hit us both. It just hit us differently. And I think probably um, that signified to you like a struggle, which is kind of goes back to what I'm saying is if you can be open with your kids, but not let them feel the struggle so much, then that probably won't scar them and might be able to educate them. Because I do think it's great to let your kids grow up in an environment like you feel scarred because you felt like you were not going to, um, you didn't think that you were going to have the laundry mat working again at home yeah, as opposed no, to it being scarred, the adventure. But it's, I think about those things as an adult. And I think like, I have to work so freaking hard because like, I don't want to go to the laundry mat. Like if I break, if my laundry breaks, like I want to be able to afford a new laundry machine. And I don't want to take my kids to the laundry. Like for me, like as an adult, that is how, you know, that's just sort of, those are the things I remember as a kid. Right. And I, it makes sense what you described in terms of like, two people growing up in the exact same household, being exposed to the similar situations, but remembering things a little bit differently and also having them contribute to different financial personalities. And so as you're both describing this, it makes perfect sense that you would have perceived them maybe slightly differently and it has impacted your attitude and behavior towards money ever since then and how you treat money today. So I think it's less concerned with having like the ideal personality or trying to shape your child's personality. Cause we want to be like really cautious. Um, there's one thing about not teaching them any values and having someone, you know, potentially grow up spoiled. Um, but if we try to like overcorrect too much, we don't want to kind of like move the pendulum too far in the other direction and have them panicked that, there's no, no such thing as having enough money. And then they become these individuals who grow up and they just work so much because they feel like they can never earn and enough and they'll enough. never have enough to be happy. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's really about finding a balance and just being honest. And being honest doesn't always mean sharing everything. You're just starting the conversation and again, sharing the values that you have for your family and starting 
kind of like teaching the value of a dollar. Like money is real. We're not going to pretend like money is not an issue. Everybody has money. Everybody needs to use money for different purposes. And kind of just like understanding the basic economics, like we work to earn an income. That income is then used to support our family and our desires, and we can save with it or we can invest with it. But you don't have to get into the nitty gritty. You don't have to tell them how much credit card debt you have or, you know, how much you spent on on your car or what your salary is, those types of things. But again, just starting the conversation and being transparent. All right, listen, here's what I want to say. Drinks are having a real moment. I am all about clean drinks, but I never realized how much I enjoyed like a bubbly flavored water. And so sound. Also great thing to pass out to guests. Well, it's very chic to have a bubbly water. I don't want to brag, but I've mentioned it before. I have a drink fridge. (laughs) Okay. And it honestly is a huge crowd pleaser. So I love to fill it with like sparkling flavored waters and sound has a very cool look. And it's all bubbly waters that it's all certified organic, completely unsweetened. So there's never going to be an artificially, um, an artificial sugar of any kind in there. It's all tea. I just said organic teas, botanicals, and fruit extracts. No, great things also just like pour into a pretty, uh, like, um, brandy glass and walk around feeling like you're involved. If you don't feel like drinking as someone who's recently become sober, um, I, you know, need a drink to have with me that is non-alcoholic so that people aren't pestering me to fall off the wagon with them. Yeah. So as you want to walk around, just Karen, Karen, what what looks like a drink, but it's really just fizzly, bubbly, organic, unsweetened water. Exactly. So they have very cool flavors, blueberry with cinnamon and hibiscus. Um, they have glass bottles. The sound drinks are good to swap out for a regular sparkling water. Or if you're just sick of basic lemon and lime in your water, sound has is more flavorful and it provides exciting alternatives. It's a great non-alcoholic cocktail swap. And it also replaces soda or tea as a midday pick-me-up, which we all need. The promo code is FOSTER for 20% off at www.drinksound.com. That is drinksound.com. Promo code FOSTER for 20% off. Sarah is a recent new customer of... Uh, actually, you, I wouldn't say I'm a new customer. You created a generational new customer. Yes. I, so I've talked about it before, but my 11-year-old is obsessed with skincare. She cleanses, she tones, she moisturizes. She does... She has steps in her beauty routine that I do not have. Again, this is obviously bad parenting, okay. but continue. You no, know, it's TikTok, but that's a whole well, other... Well, that's also bad parenting. That's continue. a whole other conversation. But I had to step in. You're like, no, go, she's just always on TikTok in her apartment. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. she. I had to step in though and go, look, I'm not going to stop you from you know your beauty routine, but at least I need to get you products that I'm okay with um, you know, filtering into your bloodstream. So what did I do? She got an entire uh, system, OCA system for her birthday. Passed down through generations. Yep, Our rap. mom gave she us so OCA sad. and Sarah gives her daughter OCA. Yeah. It's great. We love, love, love this company. My my night cream is, I bathe my face in it and it, I, I swear by it. Um, Look, you get what you pay for. This is not cheap stuff, but use the discount we yeah. are giving And you. in the morning I use their, listen, some of their, their uh, some of their, products are branded in a way that hurts my feelings. Anti-aging serum. I don't need to see that necessarily, but I still need to be anti-aged. So I use their anti-aging hand cream and I'd say my hands are looking very young lately. I use their- You're anti- like obsessed with hand cream. I really am. You're more obsessed with hand cream than you are with face cream. 
That is true. It's weird. Uh, so please buy Osea. Anything that says the word Osea on it is good. I, we could take you through the list of products, but they are all good. Guys, they have, use this discount for your daughter. I'm telling you. They have, have body oils. They have the undaughter your daughter is wearing body makeup, oil. She needs to get that makeup off. So this holiday season, stock up and share your new favorite clean skincare and body care with your friends and family. We even have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order with the promo code FIRST at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and overs over $50 get free shipping. Gifting is always easier if you start earlier. So head to Osea, O-S-E-A, malibu.com and use the code first. So let's get right into kind of budgeting advice and everything. We have a lot of listeners who are in their 20s that have asked a lot of questions about you know, you graduate college. So what are, are the tips or, um, ad- advice that you have for people in the early twenties who are just getting their first job and wanting to start fresh? Yeah. Uh, so one, anyone who is in their early twenties and just starting their career first, I'm jealous. Um, so, <laughs> but it really doesn't have to be complicated. I get questions all the time. Um, about like, you know, what are the top things I need to be doing or how much do I need to be putting away in my 401k by the time I'm 25? And there's just so much stress and pressure that is unnecessarily put on um, this like new generation of people in the workforce where they feel like they absolutely have to get ahead immediately or they've just completely missed the boat. And that's absolutely not true. I would say, first of all, don't worry about what your friends are doing. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing, especially in your 20s. That's a time when life is so different for everyone. When I was 25, like my best friend had been working in one job that she had straight out of undergrad. I was in grad school racking up additional debt. We had other people who hadn't started working yet, someone who was already married. Like everything's different. Everyone has different needs. Like, please don't compare yourself to someone else. Mine and Aaron's 20s were very dark. Financially... No, just we didn't have even we didn't even have finances to get a hold of in our 20s. Yeah. And there's nothing to be ashamed of about that. I would say, look, if you're trying to budget and I don't care if you're 22, 28, 38, if your goal is to, is to budget, throw out the apps, throw out like the spreadsheets. I know there are a million different resources out there. Just make it really simple for yourself. I say follow like an 80-20 rule, which is basically save 20% of what you make. And that can go into your 401k and go into your savings account. You can invest it. And then you spend the 80%. Can you explain to people what a 401k is? Absolutely. So a 401k is through an employer. It's what's known as an employer-sponsored plan. It's a retirement plan. Uh, It works just like an IRA, but it is something that's offered specifically through a company that you would work for. So money that you would take out of your paycheck before it goes into your bank account can go into a 401k plan that your employer offers and grow with tax benefits. So they take it out for you. They can take it out for you. You just have to give them permission to do that and let them know how much you're willing to have them withhold. Got it. That makes sense. Um, I was just thinking about how when I was in like eighth grade, our history class had this huge 
annual project where each student was given like a country that they had to run to teach you how to run a country and you had resources and you had money and you had to like, you know, purchase animals, employ people and do all these things. And at the end of it, uh, everyone was like showing kind of how they ran the country. And I was like, I thought that I was going to win because I didn't buy anything. I just still had all my money. And I was so proud of that. And I was like, I have all the money that I was given for my country. I still have it. So I win. And they were like, no, you have no sheep and no houses and no employers and no places for people to go. And like my concept was just like, hold on to your money as much as possible. But then I forgot this idea that you, you do have to spend to then to make, you have to spend to make, and you have to spend to like, you know, invest, um, or to like, if you're buying your first place and it's going to be a property that, you know, returns the money at some point better and bigger. And so, um, I guess like, how do you get someone to start thinking that way and being willing to, to like, let some money go to get it back? Yeah. So, um, it's, Less common now, but over the years, I've absolutely worked with people, especially women who feel like they need to hold on to cash. Like they're really just so afraid of the potential of loss that they don't want to risk anything. Um, is it more female? It's, it's, it is more frequently females um, that are a little risk averse when it comes to especially investing to start. The good news is um, once they start investing and become a little bit more comfortable, there is less of an investment gap when it comes to like the level of risk we take in our portfolios than there once and assumed to be. But getting started is where um, we tend to see there's that gender discrepancy or a gender gap when it comes to investing. I think a really good way to think about it is just in real terms. So when you look at your cash savings, having that is very, very important. We all need to be able to sleep well at night. We all have the things that we're going to to worry about. But rather than think there's no such thing as too much money in my savings account, think about how much money you would need if something were to happen. So if you were to lose your job, how much in savings would you need to get you until the next one? And maybe you have highly marketable skills and you can find a new job in three to six months, or maybe you're self-employed and it might take you much longer to find something comparable or to start another new business. In that case, maybe you want a year's worth of income or a year's worth of your expenses in the savings account. Once you get to that point, you really need to assess what... What else do you want to be able to do with your money? Because then we get to the really hot word lately, which is inflation and the reality of there is risk associated with just keeping cash and keeping money and not being invested. So we want to strike the right balance, but everyone will have a different sort of dollar amount that they feel comfortable keeping in that bank account before they move on to doing something else. How do you create a budget? 
Like, how, I mean, there are apps that do this now, right? So I don't know if there's an app mm-hmm. that you like. I say don't worry about the app um, or worry about, you know, finding a spreadsheet, mostly because some people don't like that level of accountability or that level of detail. Like, we have better things to do with our time than, like, track every single penny that we spend. But if you are um, someone who, like, prefers to see every, like, all the details or you consider yourself to be more of, like, a type A personality, there are some tools that are really helpful. There's um, mint.com, which is a great app. It does tend to be um, a little detailed and have a lot of different categories. There's also um, YNAB or You Need a Budget, Y-N-A-B, and um, Relay through SoFi uh, is another personal uh, financial management tool. All of these are apps. They're all free. Um, but I really don't think it needs to be that um, time-consuming for most of us. There are a lot, a lot of more confusing. So maybe the ones you're mentioning aren't, but I've tried a couple of them, not the ones you mentioned, and I become so overwhelmed. They ask so many questions that halfway through, I'm like, oh my God, like I, this is not user-friendly. I cannot. Well, I have seen a few. It, I get so overwhelmed by it. I have seen a few where I think uh, the tools that are really helpful is when it looks at your expenses, your your expense history, and it breaks down for you the categories that it, that it has. And it says to you, like, here's how much you spend on food. Here's how much you spend on, you know, uh, uh, bills like rent, housing, this much healthcare, entertainment, shopping. And you look and, it, and, and I can't remember what app so I see this. Access to all your credit cards. No, no. If you if you upload your um, bank statements, which you can do, which really helps them see where you're spending, then it'll break down for you um, the categories, and it'll say like the most of your the the most of your money is being spent in this category, or it'll give kind of like a red line on like where it thinks you need to pull back and where it thinks like you know push take this away from shopping and like you have room to spend more money on food. Does it do that on the apps you just mentioned on Mint? It can. Absolutely. And for the reasons that you described, though, some people just don't like it. So it's really a matter of personal preference. If you want to use one of those tools, absolutely go for it. If it feels like too much work and it just like stresses you out even more, just try to try that 80-20 approach. 20% does not need to go into your 401k. And if you don't have access to one, that's absolutely fine. But the idea simply is take... 20% of whatever you make in a paycheck, try to save that 20% and live off of the other 80. And that other 80 can go towards whatever you want it to go towards. Like understandably, you want it to cover your mortgage or your rent, your car payment, any bills, insurance, but you could go out to eat. You can go on vacation. You can spend it on concert tickets. There's no right or wrong combination. Like it's all about your values and priorities. Um, so the goal is, let's say, make $1,000, whatever time period. Um, we're going to try to save 200 of that and then spend 800 or have that 800 go towards your spending. The important part isn't how much is going towards your 401k or your savings account as long as you're saving 20%. For the 80%, it's less important how much goes to your car, how much goes towards gas, how much goes towards rent or you know groceries, et cetera. As long as you're just limiting yourself to that $800 of every thousand that you're making, 
then you know that you're always spending less than you make. Unless that might be an opportunity to look and say like, you know what? My rent is so high that I'm stressing to pay gas out of that 80% that I'm stressing to go to dinner and pay for my half with my friends. So maybe that does indicate to you that you need to get a roommate or you need to get a smaller apartment. Like I'm sure you could look at that and say, if I can't hit the 80% and I keep going over and needing to go into that 20%, 20%, then you then there's something off with your spending, right? Right. It's a trade-off. And that's why I like the approach of 80-20. It's not dictating how much needs to go towards your fixed expenses or your housing and how much is available for entertainment. Some people might really want to have a nicer apartment and are okay foregoing like dining out on occasion. Someone else may be really comfortable having three roommates, but they want to be able to travel as much as possible. I'm certainly not going to tell someone how to live their life and they shouldn't need a, you know, financial budgeting app to do that either. They just need to make sure that we're saving, we're not spending above our means and that we always have something set aside when we need it. And what about the taxes? So, so out of your paycheck, you're paying taxes. Are you taking 20% of the paycheck that you are taking home or before taxes? Yeah, to make things easy, I would say the net. So after tax, 20% goes to savings, 80% goes to spending. And the 20% to savings, you're saying that that 20%, you could invest some of it, you could just hold on to some of it. Yeah, so 20% savings rate is a great goal for anyone. Um, We wanna make sure that we are saving for retirement. So it is really important that, If you have access to a 401k, you're leveraging that. If not, using an IRA is a great option also. What's an IRA? Um, An IRA is an individual retirement account. It is also a tax-preferred account where you can invest money specifically for retirement. Um, So you can make the same investments in an IRA that you would in any other investment account, but then you get special tax benefits and tax treatment. At what age do you open that, an IRA? Like what's, what can do you open that when you're 18? Like, do I have my, do I open it for my kids right now? Do I, when do you open that? Yeah, so um, you can open it once you start earning money. So you as an individual would be able to open it for yourself once you're 18 and you have a job. So we wouldn't be able to open it for our kids. My son is five months old, as much as I would love for him to have um, many more years of compound growth. I can't open an IRA for him because he doesn't earn money. But if you are 18 and you have a part-time job, or if you're just finished school and you started working, um, you know, as a contractor, you're starting your own business, you can go ahead and open an IRA. So if you're earning minimum wage, open an IRA. Doesn't matter. If you're working, if you have any kind of income, open it. Absolutely. And there's no amount too small to contribute. So to your point, if you're making minimum wage and you're thinking, you've got to be kidding me, I'm supposed to be investing this money while I'm making minimum wage, I hardly have anything that I can invest. The days of needing like large lump sums of money in order to have access to investment are a thing of the past. If you have $5, you can invest $5. And a big part of where my career has taken me has been to get to a place where everyday Americans have this ability. I started my career at a firm that really wanted to serve the top 1% of wealthy individuals. And most financial institutions are designed to serve like an elite 
group of people or earners. That is really, really old school. And I think genuinely starting to become a thing of the past. And you don't need to make a lot of money. You don't need to have a lot of money. There are options available to you to start investing, to start saving for your retirement very early, even with small amounts of money. The most important part is that you get into the habit. Um, a girlfriend of mine came over the other day and she said, did you invest in blue land? And I was like, no, why? She's like, it's just all over your house. And I said, no, I did not invest in blue land. I wish I had, I didn't have the opportunity to, but I truly use all of their cleaning products. Um, because you know, we take all this time to eat clean, but you also have to clean, clean. You can't be using all those toxic chemicals. You'd be surprised. You can, you can really clean your house without using tons of harsh chemicals. Um, and so I love blue land a, because the packaging is all very sustainable. So they send you little packets, um, tablets for the laundry detergent or powder for a uh, dish detergent and, um, that you fill up the soaps with different like tablets. And so you save a lot of plastic. The stuff really works. It smells great. Um, the bottles are really beautiful to have in your house. Sarah, are you here with me? Sorry, you were just really taking this one. You're very passionate about Blue Land. Oh, sorry. So Blue Land has teamed up with Disney to create a magical collection of hand soap forever bottles designed by Mickey. And all Mickey little, himself designed? Yeah, it? and all the little whimsical, you know, personalities. Um, I think it's a pretty cute little... Um, addition. And, you know, let's be honest, we're all using soap more than ever these days and it's not going to go away anytime it's true. soon. It's really great stuff. We highly recommend that you start to use blue and you will love it and you will thank us. Also their forever bottles start at just $10 when you buy a kit and they're meant to be re reusable forever. So you are saving a lot of money. And the tablets start at just $2. Right now you can get 15% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash foster. That is 15% off your first order of any Blueland orders at blueland.com slash foster. Blueland.com slash foster. All right, guys, if you're not using clean deodorant then, at this point, then don't listen to our podcast. Well, I wouldn't, that's pretty harsh. Oh, okay. But sorry, we've sorry. really tried to educate you guys. There are legal things we are not allowed to say. Yeah, we've lectured you. So why aren't you paying your attention? research on what non you know, clean deodorants could potentially. Let's just call just it what it, it is. We're let's, not going to say it. Let's, let's just, just call it. it what it is. Aluminum. No, no, you can't. But you yeah, can say aluminum. You yeah. can say aluminum, but you, you do not want to use a deodorant that has aluminum in it. We're not going to say the brands, but they're all the ones you see on all Look, of the commercials. This deodorant is made with six simple, safe, and ethically sourced ingredients. There are no parabens, baking soda. By the way, baking soda. You should not use baking soda in deodorant. Didn't know that. No parabens, baking soda, or other hidden nasties. Mm -hmm. um, and just to be clear, we are odor. we're natural deodorant users, and we don't smell. We do not smell. You can fight odor just as well as an antiperspirant without using the aluminum. Okay. Just believe us. Trust us. I We've never steered you wrong. It's a cute stocking stuffer. Give it to your teenage daughter. Like also, let's get it, your teenage daughters on this It's a great now. passive aggressive way to say to someone that you don't approve of their deodorant choice. Order each and every for yourself and for all of the clean beauty lovers in your life. Check out our amazing bestseller set and the collection of minis. They are perfect for gifts. I don't know if you guys are aware. It's the holidays. Our listeners will get 30% off your first purchase. To get this offer, you have to go to each and every.com slash foster and use the promo code foster. 
Do not miss out on 30% off. Use the code FOSTER at eachandevery.com slash FOSTER. Um, I think it's really important that we talk about credit because I know that when I was in my 20s, that was a big conversation amongst my friends. Um, It feels like this dead end loop where to have things, you have to have credit, but to have credit, you have to have things. And it's very confusing. And so um, the messaging that was always told to me when I was in my 20s is like, you have to get a credit card. And that's the first step towards getting credit is you have to get a credit card. Now, if I remember correctly from my 20s, you have to um, be approved for a credit card. And I don't remember exactly what the stipulations are to be approved for a credit card. Um, but I know that like you have a credit line that starts out really low and then you kind of earn it to go higher and higher. But do you not feel like having a credit card when you haven't learned how to budget yourself or really learned how to manage money is dangerous? Because it does feel a little bit like monopoly money at that point. You're spending something that you don't have. It's really easy to get into credit card debt. And and I don't know. If, I don't know if it's designed to put you into credit card debt. I'm assuming that uh, there's yeah. some sort of... <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming there's some sort of like fucked up scheme where it makes it that way so that you do get into uh, credit card debt. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. Credit card companies <laughs> go into debt. So what's your advice on that? Because you do need to have credit to live as, a, as an American citizen and eventually own a home and, and lease a car and like get, get good rates. No, credit is very important. Like you said, you need it to... You need it to get a job. You usually need it to rent an apartment. Even um, when you go to the... Apple store, if you want to get a new iPhone, they usually check your credit. The reality is if you don't have good credit, it's going to be very difficult to do those things. Um, As far as credit cards go, I do think that the uh, industry, unfortunately, is not necessarily in alignment with what's best for the everyday consumer. So it is true that they make out pretty well when people tend to overspend and then have credit card debt and have a really hard time trying to pay it back. Um, But it is very possible to use credit responsibly. Um, And I don't want to be in the fun police, but, you know, you can get a credit card with a $200 credit limit and just use it for one expense a month and know that you're going to keep the limit at a dollar amount that you always feel comfortable you would be able to pay off. Where the trouble comes in is giving like $5,000 credit limit to a college student who doesn't have a job. Yeah, that's how I wound up graduating from from college owing like Amex $6,000. Right. But, but, but if you have a $200 limit, that's not really getting you enough credit, right? Actually, it can. So um, what your credit score is based off of is good credit behavior, not the total amount of credit that's available to you. So if you get a credit card when you're 18 and it has a $200 limit and you use it only when you go to the gas station and you pay it off in full each month, that's doing just as much good for your credit than if you had a credit card that had a $5,000 limit and oh. we're charging all of your expenses to it. I didn't know that. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Well, no, I didn't know that. But have you seen this thing that I think it's Warren Buffett, but I've seen it forever. And he always, he says like the best thing you can do for your kids when they are born, make them co-signers on your credit card. And that way, when they turn 18, they will have credit. Like they will actually have a credit, a credit score. And on one hand I go, Oh, that's really smart. Then on the other hand, you go, 
well, my freaking parents didn't do that for me. Like I, had <laughs> like I had to get my own credit. Am I really, is that responsible to do for your kid? Warren Buffett says it is. Yeah. So I think there's no harm in letting your kids have a little bit of an edge, right? You're not giving them an, an unfair advantage. I don't think you're spoiling them by letting them benefit from your credit history. Um, mostly because everyone has to start from scratch. So if you're just helping them start a little bit earlier, um, all the easier it'll be for them when the time comes for them to be more independent. Okay, so you you concur with Warren Buffett? I think it might be a little excessive to do it when they're born. Like I certainly haven't added my five month old son to any any of my accounts. I have but... my eleven year old. She doesn't even have a savings. Yeah. Account. We've talked about Noom a bunch of times, and I would just say let's just let's just really nail it down to the important stuff. Okay, if you want to. Um, change your eating habits. If you don't feel like you are um, eating in a way that benefits how you look, how you feel, how your brain activity is, if you're fatigued all the time, if you feel bloated, if you, you just, Noom is a really great way of understanding your eating habits differently. And it really uses like some very cool psychological stuff that, um, that helps you not feel like you're limiting yourself or that you're like going to be hungry all the time and that you're going to be on a diet. Nobody wants to be on a diet. And that's it's not what this is. It's very overwhelming. It's very overwhelming to decide that you want to start making healthier choices in your life. Mm-hmm. That's an overwhelming place to be. And I think Noom kind of eliminates. Simplifies that. it. It simplifies it. makes it. it not overwhelming. It literally takes 10 minutes a day. I think that you can um, look at this app and, uh, and it that's all you have to do. It sneakily holds you accountable and it really changes your patterns in a healthy way. And without you being deprived, because I think people associate getting healthier with like feeling deprived. Mm-hmm. And that is why this app we like so much because it doesn't do that. Yeah. And, it, and we they, have friends who are like really rocking this program and it's really working. And they, they look different. They feel different. I mean, it's like very, very legit, uh, outcomes from this. And they use the cognitive behavioral approach to focus on the why instead of the what, and it really helps change your relationship with food. Cause that's really what it is. Is like, we don't need to eat all the crap that we're eating. We just have a weird emotional connection to it and where it's like habitual and like, you know, me personally, I've really like, I've pulled out parts of my diet that really weren't serving me. And my life has gotten exponentially better. I feel so much better. Really? Yeah. I really feel it's so different. So oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, but Noom believes in progress, not perfection. So, um, that works perfectly for you (laughs) because you're always a work in progress. Always. And you're never going to be perfect. Yeah, no. Um, so start building better habits for healthier long-term results. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash foster. That is n-o-o-m.com slash foster. Bombas mission is very simple. Make the most, they make the most comfortable clothes ever, and they match every item sold with an equal item donated. I mean, are you kidding me? So this holiday, when you gift Bombas to someone on your list, you are also giving them to someone in need. It's a very great model. Um, it's one that a lot of companies have tried to um adopt and it's tough. They have figured it out. Yep. There's a, you know, obviously homeless shelters uh, are are filled with people who really are in need of so many things. And the top three requested clothing items at homeless shelters are socks, 
underwear and t-shirts. And Bombas has done a great job of doing the one-to-one donation. And so they also make really great um, quality material. Uh, So when you buy a Bombas t-shirt, you know that someone in a homeless shelter is going to get a t-shirt or a pair of socks. And why wouldn't you buy great stuff um, when you know that it's going to also help somebody in need, you know? Um, they, they're a great company. I really love what they stand for and it doesn't really, it really doesn't compromise the quality of what you're getting. Sometimes you do things, you buy things because of the, um, the donation aspect of it or the philanthropic aspect, but you're, you know, sacrificing the quality, but that's not what Bombas does. So you can feel very confident buying anything on there and feeling like it's going to be something you're going to want to wear every day. And then behind the scenes, somebody else gets helped out. They make, um, they have really soft materials like merino wool and uh, pima cotton and even cashmere. And they make really perfect, cozy winter layers. And it's very cold around here. So highly recommend Bombas. They're a great company. Go to bombas.com slash foster and get 20% off your first purchase. That is B-O-M-B-A-S.com slash foster for 20% off bombas.com slash foster. When your clients come to you and say, okay, I'm ready. I have some money saved up. I want to start investing it. Do you, and I know every situation is different, but do you lead them towards like the S and P 500? Do you lead them towards bonds? Do you lead them towards like Amazon stock? Like where do you lead them first? Yeah. So, um, the very first question is really like, what do you want to invest for? Because what you would invest in, like what type of investment would be appropriate is really going to be dependent on how long you plan on having the money invested. So if you said, I want to invest the money because I want to put a down payment on a house in five years versus I'm investing because I want to retire early when I'm 50, how you invest that money is going to be totally different. What's the scenario Um, for both of those? Yeah. So the shorter the time horizon you have for your investments, the more conservative you want to be. So for example, if I'm saving money because I want to put a down payment on a new car next year, that's money that I wouldn't even put in the stock market at all. If your goal is two years or less, I actually always recommend keeping your money in cash. Two years is a really short amount of time where if we see a market tumble, you may not be invested long enough to actually just recoup your initial investment. So two years or less, I would say keep cash. If your goal is maybe- Don't invest at all. Correct. Unless you're willing to lose it. But if you're trying to save money for something specific that has a deadline, um, like you want to start your own business at a certain point or you're putting money aside for, again, like your kid's education or something that's going to happen on a specific date, a wedding, um, I would not recommend investing it if that date is less than two years out. Um, once it's beyond unless that you're a time, gambler, unless you're a gambler, exactly at that crypto market. Which and I- if you're comfortable gambling, then, you know, sky's the limit, go for it, do, you know, do what you want to do. But just like when you gamble, you have to be prepared to potentially lose it all. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what they say with all, cause I, I'm pretty diversified in crypto and they all say like, look, invest what you are not afraid to lose. And I think that that probably applies to all sorts that's of investing. Every investment. Yeah. Just like. 
do not invest what you are not prepared to lose. So something like Stash, which is an app where you can invest any amount of money into stocks and you can do $5, you can do $10, you can do whatever amount you want. And it gives you that good, um, it gives you an opportunity to actually really like watch. Just, I mean, I think it's just important. What I learned when I started investing really small amounts is just watching the stock market. I never understood that the stock market worked. And so you invest something and then you go, okay, I have $300 in this stock and you're watching it go up and you're watching it go down. And you're like, my 300 is now $200. My 300 now is $700. And you kind of just like get to know what it, what it's like. And, um, and it can be really stressful, but definitely it should always be an amount of money that you can afford to lose. It wouldn't change your life one way or the other. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Like, there's always risk with investing. It doesn't mean that the risk isn't worth it, but we just want to be prepared. What is your, what does the person do who's coming to you saying, I'm ready to get started investing and this is my retirement plan? Where are you putting the money? Yeah. So we discussed what we would do for um, kind of like immediate term up to two years, which is not invest, keep cash. If our time horizon is a little bit longer, say like three to five years, maybe down payment on a home, then we can start investing in the market probably as something that's a bit on the more conservative side. So like some type of bond ETF, and I know that those are jargony terms, a bond is a form of fixed income, an investment that you can get an ETF is a fund that allows you to own a lot of different investments and like as a combined pool. So it's far more diversified and typically less risky. So you want to have um, more conservative investments that fluctuate less um, in dollar amount, like up and down from day to day, and will likely grow more than cash, but less over time than stocks, for example. Okay, well, what if she says, like, I don't want to be so, I don't want to be so risk averse. Like, let's go right. for it. Like I yeah, need so if you're five years. Absolutely. So if you have a longer time horizon or you just feel like, you know what, I'm young, I can earn it again if I need it, or if I happen to like lose it all, whatever the case may be, the further out your time horizon goes, the greater your risk appetite. That's where you want to invest in things like stock. So stocks are going to be um the asset class or the type of investment that where you can potentially earn the highest amount on average over a longer period of time. You're going to see greater swings in the value of your account from day to day because they're more volatile. So they'll move up and down more, but over time you'll tend to earn more on those stocks. There are other assets. I know you brought up cryptocurrency earlier. There are other forms of investing, but all of these things are other investments that you can also access in like a safe and diversified way through a portfolio. So if you're interested in real estate, you can purchase a real estate ETF. If you're interested in cryptocurrency, you can buy a small amount of cryptocurrency and have it as a part of your overall portfolio. I'm not here to talk anyone out of an investment. I'm here to just like stress the importance of try to do your research, make sure that you're diversified, And by diversified, like try not to put too much of your money into any one thing. So if you're interested in crypto, that's great. Go for it. But just make sure you keep it at like five or 10% of your, at most of your overall investments. So if something dramatic does happen, 
you're not in ruins. I, I have a question. Um, we've had a few people write in questions about relationships and different things. And a few people have written in asking questions about finances in marriages. And I, not to put you into the marriage counselor category right now, but um, I am curious kind of what your personal opinion is based on what you've seen. I imagine that you work with a lot of couples and help them figure out their financing and it's a sticky point for a lot of people. And so um, like my position that I took on an episode when we discussed this is that a huge advantage is in, is when two people come from similar backgrounds and make similar amounts of money uh, so that you're sort of balanced and nobody feels sensitive about each other's spending because the pot is kind of equal. Um, and, uh, but I'm sure it's much more complicated than that. So do you see, do you see success in relationships where people put everything in one pot together and split it and divide it up and communicate really transparently about money? Or do you see success in people, um, being able to spend freely the money that they are bringing to the table without their partner being able to have a say? Yeah. Um, so I guess just at this stage, there's really three approaches that any couple can take. The first is completely combined, where your paycheck, their paycheck goes into the same account. All the spending comes out of one account. You save for all the same goals. Basically, all the money is fungible. The second is the complete opposite. I have my accounts. You have your accounts. When a bill comes, we both split it down the middle and we do things kind of independently. And then the third is kind of a hybrid approach where there's like a yours, mine, and ours, where maybe you have like a household account that you both contribute to, but then you each have maybe separate savings for kind of like fun spending. Um, if you're going to have different hobbies or take vacations separately or, or save for, I don't know, different interests, that tends to be the most popular. However, I will advocate whatever happens to be working for you and your partner don't feel the need to change it. So if you combine everything or you keep things separate or you have a hybrid approach, just do what works for you. Every couple is different. Uh, a lot of research has been done though. And if you're wondering kind of like what is the best option if you're open to all three, research has shown that couples who combine everything fight less about money and have happier marriages. <gasps> combine everything. And have happier marriages. That's because, what the data because, says. Because it makes sense. Because listen, one sense. thing I've learned about marriage, I know this is a financial podcast episode, but the one thing that comes up over and over again in our couples therapy is anytime you find yourself saying mine and theirs, you're not doing it right. Everything is, we are on the same side. So anytime I'm like, well, my family does it this way and your family does it that way. Simon goes, nope, we are the family. You and me are the family. We are a one, we are a unit. So you don't, if you win an argument over me, you're losing. Like that we're, we're always on the same side. That, that, same that's team. something, yeah, you have to really remember you're on the same team. And I think probably financially it's the same, it's the same where if your partner is having a, um, not as good of a year and you're having a great year. It doesn't matter because it's all in the same thing. Yeah. You're exactly. a, you're a team. So the team dipped that year. If a woman came to you and asking your advice, we're getting married. You helped me with my finances. Would you advise her to combine? That is personally what my husband and I did. 
based solely on the fact that I knew as a finance professional that that was the recipe or supposedly the recipe for um, kind of like marital financial bliss. And he was all for it. I think the reason it works for us so far is the transparency aspect. There's very little opportunity or reason to have any type of like financial infidelity when everything is shared and you have financial infidelity is a very funny term. It's (laughs) real. Oh, it's real. I have friends who go, they go buy a necklace and they put it on five different cards, a check and cash all to like, I don't want my husband knowing I'm buying this necklace. What if you're a woman though, who is married and your husband's fine, he works and you're a stay at home mom. And I think so many times we are like, oh, well, she doesn't work. But it's like, first of all, stay-at-home mom is, that is like one of the- The hardest job I can possibly imagine. Going to work is a dream compared to staying home and like, you know, breaking up the Lord of the Flies. So how how do women sort of like, because I think I have friends where they have a lot of fear around finances because they are not making the money. The husband makes the money. And they're in the marriage and they're contributing just as much because they're the CEO of the home and they're running the household. But it's so ingrained in stay-at-home moms, well, you don't work. And that's just bullshit. And how do women, obviously, you would hope that you're in a like loving and open and honest partnership where you know you'll be taken care of no matter what. But how can a woman have financial independence when she doesn't work? Yeah, so I really think it's, it comes down to a matter of trust. To your point, she is working and they are a team because if she wasn't there in the home doing everything to manage the household and the family, he would be having to outsource that work and paying for it. So there is a monetary value to what she brings to the table and she is allowing her spouse to go out and earn more because he doesn't have the same constraints he would if she weren't doing that. So I think it's really very important that she feels empowered to recognize that they are a team and it just so happens that he happens to be the one getting a physical paycheck, but she is working just as hard and providing just as much value to the family and making sure that they're on the same page in regards to like what their family goals are, what would happen you know, to them if he were to lose his job, if, you know, there were any type of discrepancy. It really depends on like what she's trying to get out of the conversation. But if you have chosen to be a stay-at-home mom, you are in no less of a position to fight for what's yours than you would be if you were earning a like a W-2 paycheck somewhere else. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, I have another question. How do you feel about buying versus leasing? I used to buy, uh, I bought my car before this one and then I leased this car because everyone always say to me, why why would... Everyone says, buy, don't buy a car. Their value goes down so drastically. The minute you drive it off the lot, it loses like half its value. Um, and so do you have a, an, a position on um, leasing versus buying? We Simon, also, Simon and I also uh, lease the home that we live in. And sometimes I'm just like, oh my God, that money is just like going, like poof, like gone in the middle and, you know, into nothing. Um, 
what's your position? And obviously it depends on what someone can afford. I'm assuming that kind of changes things too. Yeah. So I would say my, my attitude about buying versus leasing a car is the same as buying versus renting your home or apartment, condo, whatever. It's really a matter of how long you plan on having that as an investment. If you are leasing a car because you're living in an area where you need one or the type of car that you have makes sense for a couple of years and then you would need to make a change or want to make a change, then it probably makes sense to lease instead of buy. So an example would be you really love um, to have an electric vehicle attack, you know, um, an environmentally friendly car, but maybe you plan on expanding your family in a year or two, and that's just not going to be sufficient to transport your family around, and you're going to need something bigger. That would be a scenario where you anticipate two years down the road, you might need something different. Go ahead and lease. But if you are planning on staying put for a while, so same thing goes for, again, renting versus buying a home, it absolutely makes sense to rent. Rent isn't, the idea of renting your home is not throwing money away. I want to be like very, very clear about that. People drastically overestimate the value of their investment return when they Mm. buy property. So true. I know that real estate has gone absolutely nuts over the last two years. We have to remember like this is an anomaly. That's not what we can continue to expect to happen all the time. It is one, not owning property, if you choose never to own a home, will not preclude you from building wealth. You absolutely can become very wealthy and never own a this home. This is important because I think a lot of people don't understand that. Like a lot of people yeah. think in order to build wealth, you need to own real estate. Yeah, so I think the reason why we believe that or the reason why that tends to work for people is because it's forced savings. So by having a mortgage, you have to make that mortgage payment every month. And over time, your principal goes towards paying off that property and you accumulate this asset and that asset also appreciates. So for many people who may not feel like they have the capacity to save and invest like in the stock market or in other like marketable securities, we'll find that their like primary residence tends to be a great source, a contributor to their net worth. The reality is if you want to rent, if you like being able to move around, if you like to have a particular lifestyle where you want to be able to call a landlord when the dishwasher breaks and you don't want to have to be responsible for maintenance and I hate being responsible for things. All of the, the headache that comes along with home ownership. You can still build wealth Elsewhere, you can take that extra money and invest it in something else. This is important because I think a lot of young people feel like until they reach the status of homeowner, they haven't really made it. And I think it's important to have that conversation because it's all changing, right? Times are changing. Everything is changing. And that's interesting that you're saying this because I think it puts a lot of pressure on young people like, well, I'm so far away from being able to like buy a home and be a homeowner. And yeah. Yeah. I I think it's really similar to the idea of I haven't accomplished what I expected in life because like 
I'm not married or I don't have kids. The reality is like we all have different goals and maybe we do want to get to the same place, but it happens on a slightly different timetable than the person sitting next to you. That's fine. If you decide that you want to own a home, do it because you actually value being a homeowner and not because you want to check it off of like your to-do list or you think it's something you have to do from a financial standpoint. It's not. It's just like, again, having kids. Have kids if you really want to be a parent. Don't have kids because someone else is telling you to have kids. That's how I feel about owning property. Um, But going back to your original question, if you want to rent, that's fine. What you're paying for is optionality. By renting, you have the ability to pick up and go wherever you want. You don't have to worry about property taxes. You don't have to worry about insurance. You don't have to worry about what happens if the real estate market tanks. And you have flexibility in your life. And I never recommend buying a home instead of renting unless you're planning on staying somewhere for at least five years. There are plenty of people who maybe they've only been in a home for two or three years and are ready to turn around and sell. That's fine. Like life changes and maybe, you know, your circumstances change. Go ahead and and do you. Do what makes sense for you and your family. But we want to make commitments that make sense. So if we're debating between buying or leasing a car, yes, if you're going to buy a brand new car, it is going to depreciate the moment you drive it off the lot. But if it's a car that's going to work for you for the next eight years, go for it. Like own it. And you can just like celebrate the moment you make that last payment. And then you keep driving the car and you own it outright and you don't have a payment anymore. I don't think that this is just a California thing, but you can answer this better. But do you find that people are living so much more above their means, particularly when it comes to real estate because interest rates are so low? Yes. Okay. So she's shaking her head. Yes. It is a huge, huge issue. And I am so nervous for <laughs> okay so explain this to me i just want to say to our audience so basically interest rates when you go to buy a home most people do not buy a home in cash most people take out a loan so in the old days you would put down 10 or 15 percent right now with the banks getting a loan is harder but you can borrow money for much cheaper but you need to have more cash to put down so friends of mine who should be buying a $2 million house are buying a $5 million house, which they cannot afford, but the interest rates which signal is how we had, can. Which is how we had the real estate crash. In 2008? Yes, people were buying houses they couldn't afford. And, they, yeah. and that we can say, we can blame the banks for that one because they were lending to people when they really should, should not have been. Yeah, right, right. So do you see this? Because for me, this I'm like excited about low interest rates because I'm like, oh, okay, like, all right, I can get a maybe a nicer house than I wanted to get. But, but what are the, the law? I haven't done it. But the property taxes are going to still be the same amount. Exactly. So if you buy so yourself a $5 million house, be ready for $5 million worth of property tax, taxes. Yeah. And keep in mind, those costs are not locked in. Those, those property taxes will get reassessed up. as often as, yeah, <laughs> as they, they go want up. to and they'll continue to go up. Because if you look at like the 80-year-old couple who bought their home in the 70s, they should be able to lock that in. Like they can't afford, I, I don't think that that's fair. I think you should be able to lock in your property tax rate, don't you? 
That would be lovely. But um, it goes up with time. We would run into problems where people wouldn't sell homes and they would just give them to their kids and then it would be even harder to get yeah. homes on the market. Right. So you're a firm believer in do not live above your means. Of course. Absolutely. And I think, look, we need to be very, very wary of what a bank is willing to lend to you in order to purchase a home. There have been a lot of federal regulations, which just mean, okay, the government realized it fucked up back in 2008, right? Housing market crash a little before that. World comes crashing down around us. And all of a sudden, all these new laws come into place to like protect the consumer. The reality is, we're still in a very gray area where banks are able to lend to us much more than what we likely can comfortably afford. So the reason I I use the word comfortably is to really differentiate. There are restrictions. They can't just let anyone off the street qualify for a million-dollar loan. But what they can do is say, I will lend to you so that you have debt that'll be the equivalent of 43% of your income. And so as long as you can feasibly make a mortgage payment, we will lend to you as much as possible. But we don't care if you never save a penny for retirement. We don't care if you never take a vacation. If you can't afford to eat out and you have to live off of like rice and yogurt. They don't care. Well, we'll give it to you. So they're not our problem. Right, they're That's basing right. it on what you have in the bank, but they're not factoring, factoring in all of your expenses. Right. So they will look at your other debt, but it's again, it's not their goal for you to become financially independent. A good rule of thumb is when you're thinking about how much you can afford for housing, try to cap your housing payment. So this, whether it's your rent or your mortgage, including your principal interest taxes and insurance at around a third of your monthly income. So 28% is ideal. So if you make theoretically $1,000 a month, you'd want to spend $280 on housing or you make $10,000 a month. $2,800 $2,800 on housing. But it's going to make you sleep better at night, right? Like we all, I think about this all the time. Like I live in a home below, I live below my means in my home. I have a nice home. I've owned it for 10 years. I'd love to upgrade. I can afford an upgrade. You know, I'd love a pool. I say it all the time, but I sleep so well at night knowing I take vacations. I can go out to eat. I do not lose sleep over my mortgage. I'm not having like parties at my house because there's really not room. Like it would be nice to do those things, but it's like, what makes you ultimately sleep better at night, right? Those dinner parties where you have 50 people in your home or knowing like I pay that mortgage and I never stress about it. Yeah. So you bring up two really good points. The first is avoiding lifestyle inflation, which is really important. The more you make all of a sudden, the more things cost and the more we're spending. If we upgrade our home or we, you know, We have roommates and then we get our own place and then we get a bigger place and then we buy a house. Every time we get a raise or a new job, you're kind of falling victim to what we call lifestyle inflation or lifestyle creep, which is by allowing your expenses to increase as your income increases. And in those cases, most people are actually worse off than if they never got the pay increase to begin with. So you do want to be really mindful about trying to um, 
save more of any raise or pay increase you get. Yeah, you start feeling yourself and you start spending a little bit more and you get a little loose. Look, there's no judgment. I did it. I remember, you know, years ago when I was living in DC, I found out that I was getting a bigger raise than I thought. And the first thing I did was go out and find myself like a new apartment and sign a lease, (laughs) like way more than what I have been paying. So I've been there. I've made that same mistake. But I'm hoping that your listeners will be able to be a little bit smarter than I was. Uh Um, Additionally, I just wanted to kind of touch on inflation again. So I know that people are hearing this word. They're seeing it every time, like, they look at the news, inflation, inflation, inflation. And we're worried that things are costing more money. One of the best ways that you can lock in your costs is by staying in your house or by purchasing something at a low interest rate and fixing your cost, whether it's a car or your home, that mortgage payment or that car payment is going to stay the same for the life of the loan. So if you get a 30-year mortgage, that dollar amount stays the same regardless of where inflation goes and how much your pay increases. So if you stay in that home for another 10 years, that mortgage payment is going to become a smaller and smaller percentage of your income. And you're going to have so much additional income for other things and other expenditures that you can, I don't know, rent out other places to host a dinner party for 50 people. Mm -hmm. Don't you think it's also important? Like I know that you, like you were saying, you know, you can't really have an opinion on what people should spend on because it kind of doesn't matter what you're spending if you're spending that 80% of your paycheck. But I've always felt like it's important to pick the lifestyle things that are important to you. Like Sarah was saying, if you want to have a house that you entertain or if you want to, you know, live in a certain neighborhood. Um, Like for me, I've always felt like things, stuff, clothes, bags, jewelry, accessories, that stuff's not important to me. Traveling nice, nice hotel rooms, experiences are important to me. So like, I want a nice hotel room. I want to travel really nicely. I want to go to nice restaurants. Like I want to have experiences that are high end. I don't need expensive bags. So when you look at it, it evens out a lot because I'm not spending shopping all the time and buying stuff. And that makes, gives me the ability to get the nicer hotel room. And so do you, do you think that that is an important thing for people to do is to sort of like kind of pick and choose where you want to spoil yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. So when it comes time to like whether or not you're going to splurge, it's really a matter of like, what is most valuable to you? And for everyone, it might be different to your point. Like if you love to live it up when you travel and you don't feel like you need to have like luxury footwear every day, great. Like that's your trade-off. But if someone else like really looks forward to being able to buy a new bag each season and they maybe don't mind like making their lunch every single day or making, you know, their coffee at home and foregoing other expenses. Good for them. There is no wrong way to do it. It's just about making sure that you're not treating yourself for every fucking thing, yeah. right? Like let's use a little bit of discretion, pick and choose where we want to spend our money and where we don't. It's so crazy, you guys, that finance is not a requirement in high school. We're learning about this bullshit math and social stuff <laughs> that we're going to use ever again. And that finance is not right there with I French. mean, math Math is a little important. I would say maybe we're like... Can you help Valentina with her homework? I'd say more like... Can you help my fifth grader with her homework? You're being really great. You're out of 12. You're I don't hit, think you're you are hitting me out of 12 again. I don't think you remember I think anything. it's more like, bi- like chemistry 
and um, algebra doesn't seem important, but like basic math and social studies. Really seem name six elements. I'm saying that's chemistry. I know. Can you name six? So I'm saying chemistry we shouldn't have. Oh yeah, chemistry. Yeah, get rid of that. <laughs> You're really coming in hot. You're like agreeing with me and screaming oh, at me I about it. You were, You're screaming you at me about agreeing with me. But it's crazy that that. Well, that's a different, that's an education conversation, well, no, but absolutely understanding finance. Like it's really crazy how many people come out of college really clueless. I completely agree that I did not grow up learning about any of this in school. I didn't grow up learning about it at home. I know most people feel exactly the same way. And that's a big part of the reason why I'm now at Stash. Like I said, I started my career working for a much larger financial institution. And over the years, I realized like just how underserved everyday Americans are by this lack of financial education and literacy. And I wanted to be someplace where I could get in front of as many people as possible to help empower them to take control of their financial lives. And hopefully, you know, one one person at a time. But I do know that there are some states who, that are now incorporating personal finance into like the curriculum. It's not enough, but there are other resources out there. My biggest concern, of course, is making sure that we're looking to the right places for that information. So a big part of my kind of career change over the last year was because I was so afraid of the number of people that are getting financial advice from TikTok influencers and from people on Instagram. Please, 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 if you are looking to educate yourself and you're trying to just like find some good financial information out there, make sure that the person that you are listening to is some way credentialed and not someone who just like has a TikTok account. That is yeah. such an interesting point. I mean, what kind of we're not really are they spreading on TikTok. Yeah. We don't really look at TikTok that much. Um, so in, in many cases it has to do with buying cryptocurrency, doing very, um, sophisticated derivatives trading, which is like, you know, buying and selling options and, um, really high fee and sophisticated insurance products that are very illiquid and usually not appropriate for most people. So those are some of the ones that have been like raised to me as very concerning. I'm probably a little too old to be actively on TikTok, um, but without sharing my age, we'll say, please, 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 if you are, <laughs> are on Instagram, if you're on Twitter, if you like to learn about personal finance, it's totally okay to like go to a variety of sources and hear what people have to say. But before you make any decisions or you take this horrible, potentially dangerous advice, check to see if the person knows what the hell they're talking about. Like what is their background? What credentials do they have? Are they potentially making money off of you making like this decision? Are they selling you something or is there some type of like incentive tied to like you purchasing something that, that they're endorsing? So we are approaching the new year and the new year is the time that everybody looks at as a fresh beginning. And so a lot of people think about their finances at that time. 
what are, um, what is advice that you give to people if they're listening to this and going, shit, I haven't been doing any of these things and I haven't been thinking about this currently, uh, or, or I haven't been thinking about it the right way. What, um, what are mistakes that people make, you know, January 1st, starting out, trying to create a fresh beginning that where they will fall off and not be able to maintain it. And what, um, should people be doing, uh, starting in January if they're looking to kind of refresh their life? Uh, Well, the one thing I'll say is if you're looking to make financial New Year's resolutions and you're listening to this in December, try not to wait until January to get started. Like this time of year is the financial equivalent to the diet starts on Monday. Because if we decide that we're going to be really disciplined about our finances in January, all of a sudden we get like kind of wild with our spending over the next few weeks. So Maybe just like give yourself a leg up and try to use a little bit more discretion over the next couple of weeks and you'll be starting off from like a better place than you would be otherwise. Um, but if you have a fi- like some other financial New Year's resolution and you're trying to figure out like the best way to get started in the new year, it really depends on on what that goal is. I know that Stash conducted a survey back in October and found that like 59% of respondents um, anticipate like improving their finances in some way. And the most common resolution was saving money for a bigger goal. So my big tip is if you're trying to save money or if you're trying to pay off debt, Try not to overwhelm yourself by looking at like the total dollar amount all at once. Break your goal down into like micro goals, maybe throughout the year. So if you're trying to save up for something special or you want to pay down your debt, figure out maybe how much you need to save each month or every paycheck. And that'll help make things feel a little bit more manageable for you as well as keep you on track. Mm Mm-hmm the best pieces of advice that people wish that they knew earlier in their life regarding savings and investing. Yeah. Like what do you, what do you wish you knew when you were younger? Cause you had all that credit card debt, right? Like what do you wish yeah. you knew back then? Um, so I do wish I could go back in time and not sign up for that credit card when <laughs> I was like a freshman in college that probably would have saved me a lot over the long run. Um, the lifestyle inflation example that I gave about avoiding like increasing your expenses as soon as you get a pay raise would also be a really good piece of advice. I wish I could go back and tell my younger self, but I really think the best piece of advice I have for younger listeners is really try to ignore what everybody else is doing and just focus on what you need to do for yourself. Everybody is different. Everyone has different like capacity to save Investments are going to be appropriate based on different goals, which is going to vary from person to person. So really just try to like worry less about what some magazine said you should have saved by the time you're 30 and focus on like what you have the capacity to do for yourself. I get questions all the time about like, well, I read that by the time I'm 40, I need to have 10 times my annual salary in my 401k, or I need to have X amount of dollars, you know, by the time I'm 30 years old. It's all bullshit. Ignore it. It's just trying to get your attention. What is going to matter most is establishing good behaviors and keeping those going throughout your career. Well, Lauren, this was very informative and it really helped me understand um, 
getting more comfortable with talking about money and it felt very solution oriented and not intimidating and not overwhelming. And, um, I think that you did a great job of talking about this while keeping it very clear and simple for people who don't understand the buzzwords around finances. And, um, I would say it's a great takeaway. If you, if you finish, if you walk away going like, you know what, I, I'm going to start investing, whether it's freaking $50, like just if but you walk away, not from even this that, going, just I'm, knowing how to save and knowing how to the percentage of your paycheck to hold on to and to, you know, put somewhere else. It's just very helpful to have percentages because people always think it's dollar amounts. And I think that that's what was really helpful for me understanding is that everyone can take a specific percentage out of their paycheck. And so very useful. Sweet. I'm so glad. I loved being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you Thank so you much. For being here. Thanks, Lauren. Absolutely. Nice to meet my you. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you like this podcast, leave a rating and review. This podcast is executive produced by. Can you not use that voice? I'm sorry. I'm trying to sound. Yeah, but you don't need to make it sexy. This podcast is executive produced by. Just be, can you do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. Okay, I'll take over. Our, Our associate, associate producer is Montana McBearney. Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great. <laughs>